Like I said, my family uh, and I went on a road trip this past week. We started out uh, last Saturday. We drove to, to Memphis, Tennessee. We then drove to the Shiloh National Battlefield and actually attended church at Shiloh United Methodist Church, um, which was really cool because if the, in the Civil War history, it's called Shiloh because there was a Methodist church there um, where they had this big confrontation in 1862. Um, so that was, that was really wonderful, but one of the things about getting to this road trip that we continued to Ohio and, and, Philadelphia, and Pitt, Pittsburgh, not Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and then to D.C. and back around, was that um, packing was a lot easier than I had expected, because usually when my family goes on a trip, we're going out to West Texas um, to climb mountains, um, and, and hiking, and camping, and hiking, and so you have to take all that extra gear, you have to take the, the backpacks, and tents, and you're carrying your food, because there's no store for miles, you don't want to drive two and a half hours to Fort Stockton, just to get something, and so you, you take everything you need, and when you're going on a road trip to the East Coast, you're just like, oh, I just need my clothes, like, that's it, it's nice, nice and easy, uh, to, to fit, fit the family and the clothes in there. One of the things, reasons why I take, take my kids and, and family climbing mountains and going out, going out to the west is how wonderfully satisfying it is to finish a mountain. You get to the top of the mountain, and you know you're there. And you know that you're there because there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> you get there, it's like, oh, there's nothing higher than this point. I have finished. I have completed the task I set out to do. It's obvious when you get there. It's hard to get up a mountain. It's hard to keep on hiking and keep on walking. Uh, so one of the things that I instilled in my kids at an early age was a very stoic philosophy of hiking. And I started out by saying, it's like we would go there to avoid the are we there yet questions. and be like, oh, it's only five more miles. No matter what, even like a half mile hike, only five more miles. But then our oldest son, Dominic, kind of stepped it up a notch and was like, it's only 15 more miles. And so that's our mantra when we're hiking. It doesn't matter where we are in the hike. It's like it's only 15 more miles to go. And then you're not thinking about the end. You're just like, oh my gosh, this is a horrible hike. Why did we do this? But it's going on. Um, and then you get to the end. It's like, oh, this is amazing. Look at this view. This is fantastic. Um, we, we use that many times. But that's, that's climbing a mountain. It's, it's a wonderful experience. You get to the top, you know you're there. When you hit rock bottom, it's, it's horrible for the opposite reason, because you don't know when you're actually there. You don't know when you've hit the depths. When I visualize the, the metaphor of, of rock bottom that's used so often in addiction ministries and, and situations like that, I don't think of a valley. A valley is, is beautiful, you have nice light, you have a creek, you can just follow the creek down to rescue. Instead, when I think about rock bottom, I imagine it being a cave. It is dark, and you don't know if you're there yet. The, ca the, the, the ceiling may be high, it may be low, it may be slippery, it may be stinky, there may be a lot of bat guano everywhere. Um, but the only way you know that you've actually hit rock bottom is when you start coming back up. In the language of addiction, many of us have family and friends, and many of, us, many of us as well have experienced addiction. But sometimes outside of it, it seems like, oh, surely this is the worst. Surely this is rock bottom. Surely they're going to turn their life around now. Surely they're going to understand now that they can do it. This surely must be the last straw. But unfortunately, it, it almost never is. What seems like the rock bottom for you is not the rock bottom for them. They can always go lower. But how deep does Jesus go for us? My friends, we are continuing our series on the Apostles' Creed, the historic doctrinal statement of faith. We are looking at how the Creed encapsulates Scripture and offers it to us 
in a way that shows us what has been revealed about God, about who God is, how the world is, how we are in need, how Jesus saves us, and what we can do about it. And today, we're looking at the phrase in the creed, he descended to the dead. And it may feel strange on this first Sunday of Advent to hear about the descent to the dead, this, this event that takes place on Holy Saturday, the day before Easter, on the first Sunday of Advent. Advent, though, has always had two meanings. The first is the most common today. It is the coming of the baby Jesus at Christmas. We have our wonderful nativity. We have our wonderful decorations. We have wonderful Christmas carols and songs of the coming of the baby Jesus. We have wonderful Advent calendars. We have a lot of wonderful secular Advent calendars. We have, there's so many wonderful chocolate Advent calendars. Any kind of candy you want, there's an Advent calendar for it. You can just, it's an excuse to get 25 days of candy. It's wonderful. Um, there's dog treat Advent calendars. There's wine Advent calendars. It's a lot of bottles of wine, but I mean, that's the thing that's out there. It's easy to sell a cute baby. It's easy to sell a cute baby and wonderful decorations and beautiful songs over the years. The second meaning of Advent is a little trickier to sell. It is the coming again of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. It's harder to sell judgment. People don't go out on Black Friday looking for judgment to buy. They, they, want, they want the cuter things. They want to get away from judgment. They want to step away from being judged. I don't want to be judged here. I don't want to be judged by what I like. But the second, the second meaning of Advent is, is tricky. But we should not get away from it. It's so, so powerful, so meaningful. The traditional scriptural reading for today is Matthew 24. Part of it is about the coming of the Son of Man. There's of the day of the Lord, the, the terrifying day of the Lord. In Matthew 24, it finishes, Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And this is, this is summarized, these two, two meanings of Advent by an early church father who wrote, we, we do not preach only one coming of Christ, but a second one as well, much more glorious than the first. The first coming was marked by patience. The second will bring the crown of a divine kingdom. Advent is both a looking back and a looking forward. The looking forward is harder because we don't know when it will be, and so we must, we must stay awake. We must be continually longing for Jesus, looking for Jesus. This is one of the reasons we have the church itself. The function of the church is to wait together for Jesus. And how do we wait together for Jesus? We wait for it by, by worshiping Jesus, by studying Jesus, by sharing Jesus, by serving Jesus in, in, in the poor, in the needy. That is how we wait and we stay awake, by, by encouraging each other in these seasons. Advent is, isn't just about nostalgia. Nostalgia is great. The memories are great. Family gatherings are wonderful. The family heirlooms passed down to the generations are beautiful, telling the stories of the different items in your Christmas decorations, the different experiences you have. But Advent and Christmas are not contained inside of just nostalgia. Advent is also about discipleship, about, about following Jesus. And discipleship is not just about the mountaintop. The mountaintop is wonderful. 
We need those mountaintops. We need those moments when you experience God in a new way, experience Jesus in a new and full way. Moments like in the transfiguration when Jesus takes his disciples up the hill and he is transformed before their eyes and they see Moses and Elijah and huge lights and a voice from heaven. And they're transfixed. But discipleship is not just about the mountaintop. It is more often about the pit, about the hole, about the rock bottom. He descended to the dead. What does that mean? In Greek, the, the phrase used in the creed is translated as to the depths, and it's similar in Latin. In Latin, it's to the below area, referring in basically to a holding space for those who have died. In, in Hebrew, it's sheol, which again is more of a holding space. Hades is sometimes used in the New Testament in this way. Hell is a, is a Norse term. It comes from Norse mythology. Um, it's not a, not a Christian term, but uh, English, English translators of the Bible were like, inflected with the Norse, and so they used that term. Many scriptures speak of, of the descent, of this time in between Christ's crucifixion and Christ's resurrection. Matthew 12 and Acts 2 are two such examples, as well as the psalm Elizabeth read earlier. We have these, so we have these scriptures that refer to what happens to Jesus after he dies, but I think that, that leads to a larger question, which we should be willing to look at and think about, is like, what happens to anybody after they die? This is an essential question of faith. Death is not the end of us. That, that's one of those aspects. There's wonderful scriptures about this, about Christ's salvation, about God's salvation offered to us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life, everlasting life. Our hope and our faith is in God's love for us. The object of our faith is not in a holding space. It's not in a metaphysical space. It's not in these, these ideas of what the future is, but it is concretely in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in God's love for us through Jesus Christ. The Bible is actually fairly evasive concerning what life after death is all about, what it will look like. Instead of rules and declarative statements that some of us may feel more comfortable with, instead of like legal documents that we know what we're signing up, what we know what's going to happen at the end, we're given images in Scripture. We're giving different images of, of sometimes it's paradise, sometimes it's referred to as heaven, and heaven is one of those tricky words, too, that's often translated in a weird way, because in English, heaven often means the space around God, right? Like, we don't use the word heaven to describe the sky, but in Greek, uranus is, it's just sky, heaven are the same words. And so translators, like, pick and choose which they want to translate as heaven and which they want to translate as sky. It's the space above and beyond us. Paul also speaks of a third heaven. He doesn't speak of a second one or a fourth one. Paul speaks of a third heaven. Um, it's a very interesting passage in 2 Corinthians. Um, I'll do another sermon for another day. On that, there's, there's language of Abraham's bosom is used often in scriptures. The heaven of heavens, the, the heavenest place is used in Genesis and Deuteronomy. The bosom of Abraham, they, they describe, Jesus describes in his parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Some things are clear, though, from the Bible about what happens after we die, that there's not this direct continuity 
of, of life here and life in our future. We see this in the story of, of Lazarus and the rich man. For Lazarus, Lazarus' life on earth was filled with pain and misery and sorrow and poverty. And after he dies, he is in Abraham's bosom. He is, he is joyous. He is rejoicing and healed. And the rich man, who lived a life of luxury here on earth, is far away from God. After that, there is a discontinuity going on. There's also scripture also speaks in a different way about the new creation, about the new heavens and the new earth, and about how our bodies are being remade and reformed, and that, that life after death is not just about immaterial souls floating around with harps and other things like that, but a new heavens and a new earth, as the book of Revelation has it. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Now, if we get back to Jesus and we get back to the creed, we can get back to this descent to the dead, descent to the depths. Because part of it, and part of the way people have read this, is what happened to people who died before Jesus? A lot of people lived before Jesus was born. There's been more people alive after, but there was a lot of people before. Are they forsaken just because they lived in that time? Because of where they were born or when they were born? I don't think that's what God is speaking to in the creed, that your life with God depends on factors outside of your control. Part of how, how Scripture understands these spaces of after death is these spaces where we're of sin, of that we created through our sin and disobedience with God. And Gregory the Great writes this beautifully, that Christ went down to the deepest depths. When he went into the lowest depths to fetch forth the souls of his elect, before the redemption, the depth was a prison, not a way. But God made of this abyss a road. What humanity made into a prison, God made into a road. What people, when people have said no to God through sin, God has said yes to us through Christ. The hardest no imaginable was not impenetrable to the God who created everything and loved us so much to seek us even in the depths. Peter, in one of the strongest scriptural examples of the descent to the dead, speaks of a proclamation, evangelism to the dead. He describes in 1 Peter the heart of the matter. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. A proclamation. What was that proclamation? The proclamation should be understood as an action which, which plants eternal life in the midst of eternal death. The descent to the dead, like the second meaning of Advent is rarely emphasized in this world. Many Christians go through their whole lives and never pay attention to it. Little thought to this descent to the dead, little thought to Advent beyond usually like a weird sermon on the first Sunday of Advent, and then it's back to the good old Christmassy kind of things. You got Mary and Joseph and camels and all that kind of jazz. Many people don't pay attention to the descent to the dead. Some versions of the Apostles' Creed don't even have it. I didn't think about it until I went to seminary. It is a, it is a curious phrase. In, in 1792, the, the Methodist Church in the United States cut it out 
um, for a few years. I think because they thought it was extraneous. It wasn't like a deep um, theological argument. It was just kind of like pragmatics. That this was something they did a lot when John Wesley sent over his edit of the Book of Common Prayer. It was, it was about like a tenth is thick. They, the Church of England has 39 articles. He sent over 25. He thought 14 were kind of useless. Um, just cut them out. So let's, what's, the way, what's the point of this? Um, later in the 20th century, it was added back in to the creeds because of different uh, studies of the early church. But still, many people go through it, recite it. It's like, what is this? I don't know what it is. I don't know what it means. Is this in the Bible? Should I think it? I think, my friends, that the creed is truer because of this phrase. An example I want us to think through is that like, if you have a staph infection on your skin, you could clean it all you want. You could clean it all you want. You could wrap it all you want. It's not going to go away unless you actually take care of the root of the problem. You can deal with the symptoms all you want. It doesn't affect it. To believe in Christ without the descent to the dead is literally to stay on the surface. We don't have to deal with the hard things. We stay on the surface of the world and the surface of sin. We continue to, to deal with the symptoms instead of the root of the matter. On the contrary, to believe and affirm the descent is to believe there is no depth of death or pain or suffering to which Christ has not gone down. It is to believe that those chosen and loved by God are not limited by timing or happenstance. It is to believe and affirm boldly the words of St. Paul from Romans 8. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor present things nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. What was a prison is now a road, is now a way, a path. What was eternal death is now eternal life. Our hope in Christ is not just limited by our own imagination. Christ offers himself fully for us in the fullness of our own experiences in this world, in the fullness of the past history of the world. Even more, the descent shows us what we see every day. The total victory of Easter is in the future. We still live in a holy Saturday world. That day between Good Friday and Easter, that day between crucifixion and resurrection, we still live in this world where we see brokenness around us, where we see pain around us, where we experience pain and suffering and, and fragments of sin because of the brokenness of this world that is crying out for a Savior. A world of doubt. Easter is not just this instant triumph over death. It is a total one, and the total one takes place with Christ's return in that second meaning of Advent. But Saturday is where we are until then. And even when you're going through a time of darkness, Christ is here with you. Christ doesn't just wait on the mountaintop for us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and climb on up. Christ is here for you. More so, grace is here for you in those times when you can't even put your boots on, let alone strap yourselves up by them. Christ is here with you. Christ will come again, but Christ is already present. 
present as the body of Christ, present in those whom we serve, present in those moments when we live beyond ourselves, when we forgive ourselves, when we love our neighbors who don't deserve it, when we love our family who doesn't deserve it, when we love ourselves when we don't deserve it. Christ is present in those times. And so, my brothers and sisters, in the season of Advent, if we seek Christ, we cannot stay in the safety of our status quo that is comfortable with the first meaning of Advent, but not with the second. That Christ is coming to break through the structures of sin in this world and sin in our hearts. And we need to be ready for that. Ready to let go of acts of destruction and hold close to actions of life and hope, to stay awake together, to do the things of God, to love those in need, to hold firm to faith. You are not alone. Even at rock bottom, your loved ones are not alone, even at rock bottom. Christ is there. Even when we deny it and we push away, our no is not as strong as Christ's yes for us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love that reaches to the depths of sorrow and pain because through Jesus, you have already proclaimed life in the midst of death. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.